Welcome back to the program. Progressives and social activists are often portrayed as latte-drinking, sushi-eating, Volvo-driving, arugula-eating, wine-sipping, Birkenstock-wearing, New York Times-reading, etc., etc. You get the idea. This isn't just an ordinary line of attack, because what it does, what it means to do, is to drive a wedge between classes, class groups that often have common goals, shared values, and a true desire to solve real problems that we face. But the attacks often work because sometimes the leaders of social movements themselves forget that while goals may be shared, many groups and many different classes bring very different expectations and approaches and different worldviews to solve similar problems. But how can this circle be squared? How can these groups not work against their self-interest in a what's-the-matter-with-Kansas kind of way? My guest, Betsy Leander Wright, gets to the core of the problem and potential solutions in her new book, Missing Class. Betsy Leander Wright is the project director and senior trainer at Class Action, and her new book is Missing Class, How Seeing Class Cultures Can Strengthen Social Movement Groups. Betsy Leander Wright, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jeff. Glad to be talking with you. It's good to have you here. In many ways, a lot of what you write about in Missing Class grows out of some of the work that you did and some of the things that you wrote about in Class Matters. Talk a little bit about that first. That's right. Yeah. So um, I had been um, an activist already for about 25 years when I wrote um, my prior book, Class Matters, and um, I was just curious about why were there so few cross-class groups and movements um, working for social justice together. Um, And uh, I speculated in Class Matters that one of the reasons was that there are cultural differences among activists of different classes, meaning different ways of talking and seeing the world and framing issues and approaching problems um, that we just differed from each other. And so I, I made that statement in sort of speculatively with my own anecdotal uh, evidence in in Class Matters, and I got more intense reaction to that part of the book than to anything else I wrote about. People who were who are part of um groups working for social justice just were like they were agreeing vehemently they were disagreeing vehemently they were asking me for specifics like what are the the crucial culture traits that on which we differ and how are they getting in the way there seemed to be a real eagerness to know that answer and i thought well the really the only way to find that out would be a large social science study where you have enough groups that are diverse enough that you can really be sure that class culture differences is what you're seeing. So I, I quit my day job and uh, spent five years um, doing that study. And this is the results. And, and I, I found that, yes, um, depending on activist class backgrounds, like their parents' level of education and occupation and their own class life experience as adults, there are dramatic differences in how typically, of course, there's exceptions to every generalization, but how typically um, activists operate in in their groups and that this is one of the things going on that's keeping us from forming strong cross-class alliances. In many ways, it is reflective of, of the larger society, the larger social framework, this idea that we are more atomized as a culture, that we're more diverse as a culture, there are less things that we have in common. And in many ways, this reflects that in a broader sense with respect to some of these ideas. 
Yeah, I think that's right, that um, we're, most of us live very class-segregated lives, often also race-segregated lives, but even people who have friends of multiple races or, or co-workers, um, nevertheless, are, um, you know, we we live in a certain kind of neighborhood, we, work, we socialize with people with similar education levels as ourselves, um, and that um, I think that in some ways the class segregation is intensifying, like m- cross-class marriage is dropping dramatically. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's no longer true that college-educated men may marry a woman from, when speaking of heterosexual marriage, which is the majority, um, may marry a woman from any class. That used to happen a lot, um, and increasingly it's not, that um, people are, are pairing up within their within their classes. So... Um, I think uh, it's it's a it's a problem for the society as a whole. But you would you would expect progressive people coming together to work for to improve their community or their country or the world would would do better. I, as a progressive, I, I expect people with those values to do better than average. And we, in fact, are just about as class oblivious in class denial, um, by default, letting the more class-privileged people run the show, we are just as bad, um, not as the worst of the mainstream society, <laughs> but, but we're a lot, we're a lot more um, clueless than we should be. How much of it also has to do with economics? I mean, certainly education, which you touched on before, is a part of it. But particularly in tough economic times, where the hierarchy of needs, even within the context of progressives, is different, that also adds to this division. Well, I think that certainly there are people who would, especially working class people, who would love to um, get involved in some in some cause or some community improvement project or some um, labor organizing, who literally do not have the slack. Um, and so that's, in terms of whether people become activists at all, um, certainly the fact that there's been kind of a speed up of our work in general in our society um, and um, working people of all classes have, have less slack. Uh, um, but I was looking at people who had gotten over those obstacles because I what the study involved going to meetings observing and taping meetings and then interviewing the activists who were there. And um, so the um, the problem of literally not being able to be an activist wasn't one I could look at. And there are lots and lots of low-income and people and people with financial hardships who are nevertheless, you know, trying to unionize their workplace or their occupation or involved in a community group or through a religious congregation or joining um, some committee that does social justice work. So um, I found there are activists of every class. It just they tend to be in these very separate movement traditions that the environmental and anti-war and other uh, global cause groups don't um, connect very often with unions and community organizing groups. Anarchists, anarchist groups tend not to, often not work in coalition at all. They're just on separate tracks. As it, when I feel like what we need to do to have sufficient clout to actually change um, the society in some fundamental ways, 
we need to be forming large, larger and more powerful coalitions. Is that going to take a more specific reaffirmation of shared values, or is it going to take specific issues that cut across those class lines? Well, there definitely are issues where um, there's sort of a natural alliance. Um, one, I, one movement I would especially spotlight is doing a good job on this is the environmental justice movement, that in some cases the uh, more college-educated white majority um, environmental groups, some of them are doing really great coalitions with the environmental racism groups and the local toxics groups um, that are objecting to who who is who it is that gets poisoned, um, where things get cited, whose neighborhoods things get, uh, dangerous things get cited in. So there are some really great examples from that movement of um, collaboration. There also are environmental groups that are blowing it and not seeing that potential for collaboration. Um, so I think yes, I, I agree with you that sometimes finding um, um, a common issue increasingly. Um, there are opportunities for middle-class people to be allies to working people. So groups like Interfaith Worker Justice and Jobs with Justice down in Florida, the Coalition of Muckley Workers, drew in um, religious congregations and student groups from all classes to be allies to the tomato pickers. One, you know, great success winning the Taco Bell um, boycott. So it does happen. I'm just asking why it doesn't happen more often um, and why so often uh, groups are are drawing primarily on people of one class or even if they're mixed class, they don't necessarily even know how much class diversity they have. I found that group members often guess wrong about the class background of other people in their group. And um, there's a lot of hiding of of class stories, p- people hiding either hardships or luxuries in their class stories, and um, a lot of kind of posing. You know, in on the left, mm-hmm. it's you get more status often from being in an oppressed group. So um, I found people um, presenting themselves as poor people or as working class people where when the, the full story came out, <laughs> that was not the majority of their life experience. And um, so there were, you know, basically hiding class privilege. We need some more honest, reality-based conversations about class. How much of it is that opposition to some of these progressive causes has become very effective in driving wedges between classes as a way to weaken the movement? Yeah, I think um, that uh, the sort of right-wing populist tradition that we've always had in this country is um, is alive and well, and that there's all that sort of fake grassroots, you know, they say astroturf, um, making, making causes out of um, trying to appeal to large constituencies, including working-class constituencies with... With uh, you know moral panics about a war on Christmas or something, you know, just just really non-issues turned into into issues um, or death panels or whatever. You know, right. Seems like there's a new one of those every few months. Some PR firm is rolling them out. Um, but 
um, I guess I think that that there's a tendency to overgeneralize to the point of stereotyping, assuming that um, white working class people and particularly southern and midwestern men, white working class men, assuming that they you know they're all just um, being duped by that stuff that's a kind of what's the matter with Kansas um, situation where they're voting against their class interests because they're following these demagogues and um, I, I just would caution against that overgeneralization and say working class white people are the biggest race class group in our country and they're incredibly diverse in political thinking and um, they, it, the progressives among them may be a minority particularly the, among southern and midwestern men but um, just because they're a minority doesn't mean they're um, there aren't millions who do have, especially a critique of of um, economic inequality. I think thinking the rules are rigged and the people on Wall Street got away with murder, those attitudes, even among people who are socially conservative um, and in um, conservative Christian denominations, those attitudes are really common. And so we have so many more potential allies than uh, many... Um, you know, more college, more college-educated progressives think that we have. Is it instructive to look historically back to the 1960s and look at the coalitions that came together with respect to the civil rights movement and Vietnam, and can we learn anything from that? Um, yes, absolutely. The civil rights movement stands out in U.S. history as one of the most cross-class um, and, um, it, you know, it was who, who could take the risks at a time when there was lynching and just, you know, extreme um, sanctions against, against voting or, or um, integrating segregated facilities. So the risks, initial risks were taken by a little bit more class-privileged people, the, um, the black college students um, and clergy. Um, and then gradually uh, the space opened up and so ended up with lots and lots of you know, like Fannie Lou Hamer, sharecroppers and, and um, domestic workers getting involved. Um, in terms of the Vietnam War movement, um, I think it was really um, had two, two places it started that were very different by class. Um, one was like SDS, the students attended to actually be elite students um, who were the first ones to, to start um, that movement, um, but then also the GI movement that had started in Vietnam uh, itself among the soldiers and then when they would come home. Um, and the two did not always come together so well. There's a fantastic um, book about this by Penny Lewis just from last year, Hard Hats, Hippies, and Hawks, the Vietnam Anti-War Movement as Myth and Memory. It, I, th I think of that one as an archetype for the kinds of missed opportunities I'm talking about where um, more class-privileged people blow it on a potential collaboration because working class and poor Americans were more likely to oppose the war, and yet the movement itself remained in public imagination, but also in terms of who actually joined groups and went out and demonstrated. It remained the province of, of mostly white, mostly college-educated people in the suburbs and so forth. So um, there, was, there was this huge constituency, and 
um, some of the issues that kept them from joining was the count the counterculture that being against the war you didn't have to smoke dope to be against the war you didn't have to grow your hair into the counterculture you know big hair styles um, you you could be of any subculture and work against the war and too many people made it unwelcoming if someone didn't want to get the whole package of a of a radical critique of the whole society and participation in a counterculture and the that mistake started to be made again in the globalization movement in the 90s and the occupy movement with um subcultural markers um say the anarchist uh clothing styles and lifestyles and food um and um unusual kinds of group process like with hand signals that um, there's doing things in this very alternative way even if you have great reasons for having the different values um, eating different, dressing different talking different, whatever it is you're doing different um, it may be very important to you and you may have um, some really great values underlying those choices but when you're trying to work in coalition those kind of weirdnesses um, can be alienating to to people in the mainstream, the majority of whom are working class. You're losing out on having some allies. And we were talking before about the opposition driving wedges. I mean, Vietnam is the classic example because exactly what you're saying now is what, what Richard Nixon understood so well when he tried to define the silent majority in opposition. Right, right. And, of course, there were people who were big Nixon supporters and supporters of the war. He did have a constituency to draw on with that rhetoric, but that wasn't the majority. The, mm-hmm. ma- the majority, um, by the time he was talking, by the time it really you know, reached ahead in the late 60s um, and early 70s, um, the majority of, of every group in the society, but especially working class and poor people and African Americans in particular, majority were against the war. So um, he was, that was just, um, I don't know if it was self-delusion or propaganda to delude <laughs> the country, but he was wrong about that. Is there a blind spot today in looking at class-privileged people within these movements and a kind of denial of the difference, the fundamental difference that class makes. Absolutely. And I, I saw this particularly with voluntarily downwardly mobile activists, which I empathize with because I was one myself in my youth. Um, I worked very, very part-time, um, tried to live on no money so that I could give my time full-time to activism. And um, there's lots of people doing that today, which um, more power to them. But um, the the thing I think is a problem is then saying, well, I'm a poor person, which I, some of my interviewees and during the meetings, people literally would say, um, you know, referring to some issue in the news affecting poor people um, or about recruiting poor people into the organization, they'd say, well, I'm a poor person um, because by income, by income, their income might have even been lower than than um, the poverty line or than most poor people. But um, in terms of cultural capital, terms of knowledge and um, options 
and being having a social status that you're recognized because you speak the same accent as as people in power that way way under um estimating that as, as how powerful those intangible kinds of class privilege are and because of denying it having informal kinds of domination where people who came from very privileged backgrounds could just sort of have that sense of entitlement and assume that they should be running the groups and not feel like they were they were doing anything you know dominating or or exclusionary against um or working class and poor people or other marginalized people in the group. So the denial of the kinds of class privilege that stay with us, whether or not we have money, uh, is it's it's really harming uh, movement building, I believe. Is one of the fundamental differences that traditionally classes, class define their own culture within the context of a larger culture. Today, it seems that it's exactly the opposite, that culture, because in many cases it's driven from a consumer perspective, that culture today is defining class. And that's a fundamental difference, it seems. That's interesting, yeah. I I think that um, for progressive activists, it it really varies by your class, that most of the college-educated professional activists define themselves in opposition to their culture of origin. Um, so, say I'm a you know I'm a white person um, from a middle-class suburb. So I think I I define myself as I'm the opposite of of those suburban upper middle-class people I grew up with. I'm opposite from them in values, in politics, in what I'm doing with my life. That's um, that's not usually the stance of working class and poor activists. In fact, the people who are joining groups and and working to make their communities better or the world better often have stronger identities with their root communities. So like African-American activists um, who grow up working class have stronger black identities and stronger um, uh, loyalty to their their neighborhood of origin and um, people who grew up like in farming communities um, who are now in uh, rural activist groups have um, more loyalty to the location and to the farming traditions, et cetera, that um, it's, uh, it, it actually strengthens your identity to have the progressive values and to join a group working for social justice for working class and poor people actually strengthens those other affiliations. So it's, it's, it's one of those places where we are really opposite of each other, depending on class. In some ways, it's how we define who we are. I mean, it starts out, it's the old Groucho Marx line, I don't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member. But the, <laughs> the, the other part of it is the degree to which the activism comes out of rebellion, on the one hand, which we see in right. many cases, or whether it comes out of this genuine need for things to, be, to change in order for one's life to be better. Yeah, I think that that's, um, that people really enter activism differently, and then that ends up explaining a lot of these different group process uh, tastes and different approaches to problems that I found um, that most working class and poor activists had pre-existing connections before entering the group. Um, Obviously, if it's a neighborhood organization, they know people in the neighborhood or a workplace organizing, union organizing, they know people at the workplace. But even if it's just 
oh, we're all getting poisoned by the same uh, toxic facility or um, we're all struggling with the same bureaucracy that's cutting back on our benefits. Um, and, and also people tend to recruit their family members. People, Working class people are more likely to live near extended family and so their arms get twisted and their sets of siblings and um, gen- different generations in the group. So there's just much, there's much more it's much more common for there to be relationships outside the group that pre-existed the group, whereas most um, college-educated um, professional middle-class activists um, first made an internal commitment to an issue or cause or ideology inside themselves. They carry it around inside themselves and then went looking for a group that matched it. And so it's it's a more individualistic path um, and um, but it has a strength to it because then even if something goes wrong among the people, um, the person can can keep their eyes on the prize of stick with the issue or find another group. That I, I I ended up this is one of the places where I ended up saying I think the strongest groups have both and both forms because um, the 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 emphasis on one-on-one relationships and loyalty to leaders in working class groups. Is it really is a strength that helps them weather tough times. Um, their group gets opposition um, or has funding troubles because the people have more loyalty to each other. The people who don't tend to leave. Um, and so that's a strength, but it's also a weakness. It's a fragility because if there's a falling out of our personality clash among the people, then the group can break up over that or people can leave. Um, and... Uh, similarly, the that internal sense of I don't care, I'm going to find a group that's working on, say, climate change, and if it's not this group, it's going to be another group. That's got a durability to it, but um, it the insisting on the group working on just your issue or having your ideology, there can often be fissures and and rancorous splits by ideological differences, which happens much, much less in working class groups. So I think really the strongest groups would have uh, bonds among the people and commitments to the issues and the ideas. There's no stronger example of exactly what you're talking about than looking back at the 2008 Obama campaign, where all of these groups coalesced and to see how they have splintered subsequently. Yeah, exactly. That was such a moment. Like, so I knew so many people who were like, well, we're working on this campaign in part because we're going to keep it together as, as organizing. Um, and I think that was a promise that, that didn't happen. Um, similarly, I, I, one of some of the groups that I studied, I studied the convention protesters in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, I went out months early to the two convention cities where the Democrat and, Democratic and Republican National Conventions were going to happen, and I observed the, the planning meetings for the protests. Um, there were some uh, really tough dynamics among the very, very different groups. Um, that came together for those protests. And um, then I went back for the last-minute meetings, um, spokes councils and other kinds of meetings uh, during the protests and um, attended as a participant observer a lot of the events. Um, and so um, that a lot of people said then, too, well, we're organizing for this one big protest during one or the other conventions, but we're also trying to build ties among 
people in in the community and um, form an ongoing coalition. And as far as I know, none of that came to pass. As so often happens, we go our separate ways after those rare moments of coming together. And this is one of the places that it gets so complicated when politics, the reality of contemporary politics, meets up with these issue-driven ideas. And and the way in which they both come together and split apart is also part of what creates this chasm that we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, And that we, you know, I think if you look at how the right wing does this, it's not like they all agree on things. There's, you know, there's there's a, a log cabin Republican end and and this, these really insanely homophobic ends within the within the same broad movement. But they somehow managed to come together um, in bring those different strands into single organizations and um, even and unite across their differences when voting, at least. Um, and I think left of center, uh, we have done a much worse job of that, um, that we um, we divide up um, by different movement traditions. We divide up by, um, by what issue we think is the priority, by how moderate and liberal or radical we are. Um, and I think I'm, my book is adding to that, that... Uh, some of what's going on there is we 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 go our separate ways by class. That that's that's a less looked at portion of that big political split. So this is one of the places where we're over. You know, I'm saying missing class as in overlooking class. We're overlooking class as one of the factors keeping people apart. Betsy Leander Wright. Her book is Missing Class: Strengthening Social Movement Groups by Seeing Class Cultures. Betsy, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. It's always good to talk with you, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.